Welcome to Naturally Nourished, a food is medicine podcast that delivers cutting edge information and solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought out by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only and should not be used in place of any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from a licensed health professional. Now welcome your host, Allie Miller, integrative dietitian and owner of Naturally Nourished, and her vice president, integrative dietitian Carly Vogler. Hello to all of our listeners. Today is podcast number 40, which is kind of crazy. Absolutely, yes. They are really racking up. This is Carly, and I'm with Allie. Hey, guys. And we are talking today all about heart health. Um, Last month was February. It's now March. And last February is Heart Health Month. So we want to talk about heart disease and very specifically cholesterol because I know a lot of clients are confused about that. They still come in talking about their fear of eggs and and shrimp and exogenous forms of cholesterol. So we want to shed some light and clarify and even correct some of those common misunderstandings. Yes, and all too often we're still seeing people being scared into statin drug therapy uh, or it being recommended by their general practitioner with just moderate cholesterol risk. And then even once they follow up with a carotid artery scan, having no uh, form of plaque or any other risk factors. So we want to help to identify for you guys what are the true risk factors? What are the cost to benefit ratio of certain medications on the market? And then the nutrients and food as medicine to keep you heart healthy. Exactly. So Allie, can you start by discussing to everyone how heart disease can occur? How does it start? What's the true root cause? So the root cause of cardiovascular disease is is going to be inflammation. Um, you know, inflammation is known as this silent killer in the body, and we're learning more and more and more how it is the evil driver or mechanism behind so many different disease processes. But when we're talking about cardiovascular disease in general, when we focus on things like cholesterol, Cholesterol is concerning when it is oxidized and it drives plaque formation. Um, But cholesterol doesn't just set up in your arteries for no reason. It sets up in the arteries driven by inflammatory chemicals that call the cholesterol in to form a band-aid to repair an injury. So let's first talk about maybe why the injury could occur. One of the primary causes is hypertension or blood pressure. When, if you think of the the vessels in the body like a garden hose, if you have that hose at high pressure, tiny little micro tears are going to occur from the interior element of the vessel, and that's going to create tiny little micro tears that need to be repaired. That's going to drive inflammatory signals to your system, and your immune system is going to throw in inflammatory cascades and upregulate oxidized cholesterol to build band-aids or plaque formation. Another reason for injury would be in elevated blood sugar. So if we're talking about blood sugar, you could think of your blood cells, your red blood cells floating through the vessels constantly, right? Along with other things like toxins, chemicals, nutrients. And um, based on what's flowing through your bloodstream, these can be abrasive. If you think of the sugar coating your red blood cells, uh, think of like sandpaper on a ball. So this is going to be kind of rough or um, abrasive, and this is going to make tiny little nicks at the surface of the vessel. 
that's going to also create those internal injuries in the same mechanism where the inflammation has to call in those oxidized LDLs to create plaque formation. So the first line of defense is to keep your blood pressure and blood sugar regulated so you don't create those micro tears. And then the second and third line of defense are to keep inflammation at bay so that the inflammatory chemicals don't go haywire to upregulate the plaque formation. And then you may have heard I talked about the word oxidized cholesterol. So a high antioxidant diet is another way to help to prevent the form of the LDL cholesterol to be a risk factor at all or to become oxidized and sticky and drive that plaque formation. So I think all of what Ali said can be the first aha for people, hopefully, is that, you know, cholesterol has this negative connotation, but it's not as simple as cholesterol, good, cholesterol, bad. There's a lot of different ways that cholesterol plays a beneficial role, um, which I think we want to get into next is just what what can do for you. But it's not just about your number. It's yes. not high or low, good or bad. It's a little bit more complex than that. In fact, a lot of the correlation research of elevated cholesterol is based on a bell curve. We can see individuals with cholesterol levels in the 300s and plus living at age 90 to 100 in their lifespan. And, um, you know, we demonize cholesterol, I think, because there's such a financial gain in the industry of drug therapy to lower that disease marker. Um, And so, yes, cholesterol does play a role, but it's kind of like the firefighter at the scene of the fire. So cholesterol does play a role in putting out the inflammation um, and repairing the injury, but it didn't cause it. So that's something really important to understand. And on the other end of the spectrum, When I see cholesterol too low, I actually get concerned with my patient's well-being. And this happens often with things like adrenal fatigue, post-traumatic stress disorder, or suppression of your steroid hormone pathways. So cholesterol in its function in the body uh, is an integral element of every cell membrane. It actually is in the cell membrane of all of the cells that make up your body. So it's important in your, your barrier defense of your cell membrane. It is actually has some antioxidant function within itself, and it plays a role with steroidal hormone expression. So it's coming off from the building block pregnenolone, which is the same building block that makes progesterone and DHEA, which then helps to play a role with testosterone and estrogen. So someone that has very low cholesterol levels may also have low hormonal output and may also have excessive inflammation because cortisol helps to keep inflammation at bay. So Ali, you had mentioned these particles. Um, I think there's there's different sizes you had said. Let's talk a little bit more about particle size, particle density, and when we look at a panel, what you're looking for to really segregate someone that's at risk versus someone that's not at risk. Sure. So, you know, if we just have a standard lipid panel, which is going to be your total cholesterol, your LDL, your HDL, and triglycerides, that's the standard lipid panel, which is generic and, and most physicians are running. This can give us some information. Um, Usually the uh, demonized characters are going to be the LDL and the total cholesterol. And most doctors like to see the total cholesterol less than 200 and that LDL less than now 100 or 99. It really used to be 130, so that's been a recent change. Now, up-to-date research, as I mentioned the word oxidized LDL multiple times, up-to-date research is learning more about the density of your LDL molecules. It's important to understand that of those values I listed, those four 
values that most of us are using to determine our heart health, these are an algorithm. They're not a particle count. And so having an elevated LDL of let's say 140, it's more important to determine the actual true particle count because large LDL molecules are more buoyant. These float through the blood vessels and are less prone towards oxidative damage, whereas the small, dense LDL particles are much more prone to oxidation. So actually, of the LDLs, we're looking at which ones are more prone to oxidation, which is the driver of plaque formation. So particle count is a really great thing to request, um, and we'll talk about tests and resources at the end here, but that's that particle distribution that Carly was asking on. There's large, buoyant LDL and small, dense LDL, and both of them are totaled in that generic LDL value you're getting. So even if your LDL, quote unquote, bad cholesterol is elevated, you may not be at cardiovascular risk. And then of the standard panel, um, you can look at ratios. So even if the total cholesterol is at 280, but your HDL is 110, HDL is supposed to be greater than 39, and it's cardioprotective. HDL also has particle size, and, and it, it's comparable in that, that distribution, and that's important to look at. But if you're using the generic values, HDL, the higher the better, it works like a broom to the vessels. So I'm not concerned at someone that has a cholesterol of 280 where HDL is 109 or 110 and that LDL is 140. That's a very favorable ratio. So you can look at the ratio of your LDL and HDL as well as triglycerides and HDL. And the triglycerides to HDL speaks more to like insulin resistance and prediabetes. So beyond cholesterol, we can tell that from what you're saying, it's, it's clearly not the only factor that really is going to determine someone's disease risk for heart disease. What else is important to assess in a lab panel um, that really shows you if someone's at risk versus just the, the cholesterol number? Right. So, you know, even beyond looking at, like I said, the first thing you want to do if you just have generic numbers is check out where your HDL falls in, in relationship. Then if you can request a particle distribution, all the better for true disease risk. But even beyond the distribution of your lipids, I like to look at a true cardiovascular risk score of your C-reactive protein. This is a marker of inflammation, again, the driving cause of heart disease, as well as your homocysteine value. Homocysteine is a marker of vascular inflammation and also plays a risk role in thrombosis or blood clotting, which drives stroke and also can drive plaque formation and hardening of arteries. And homocysteine is one of those disease markers that requires methylation. Um, methylation is a process of building or excreting. And there is a genetic element that I believe last I heard was about 60% of the population has issues or genetic SNPs uh, with methylation and it's called the MTHFR gene. And so if we have a genetic mutation, we're even less prone towards that methylation function and homocysteine can get really elevated. So homocysteine is a good marker of vascular inflammation. The C-reactive protein is more systemic inflammation. And I will say that is a sensitive marker. So if it is elevated, you know, you may want to be mindful of if you had an injury with exercise or you worked out really hard that morning, you could have a false elevation. So something to monitor over time. But when I see C-reactive protein elevated, I do typically recommend that MRT test to look at reducing inflammation in the patient, what's driving inflammation in their diet and chemical intake. Um, and then another marker beyond the homocysteine and C-reactive protein is your LP little a. Your LPA 
is looking at your lipoprotein particle A and this is also highly correlated to the stickiness factor in the blood. So this is more of a blood marker. Um, it's correlated also with uh, thrombosis or plaque formation um, and also clotting factors. And um, this is something that we monitor as far as, again, both stroke and cardiovascular disease. And the CRP, homocysteine, and LP, little a that Ali's referring to are often labs you have to request. I don't usually see clients just come in with no. those numbers and we just had a, a really fantastic cardiologist speaking to us from Arizona and he said ask your physician what their homocysteine is and he, you probably don't know so it, it's not commonly known that it's a great marker to look at to check out your inflammation so things you might need to request that probably just won't be on a comprehensive lab absolutely and I mean for each of those as far as there are direct nutritional interventions. You know, I used to work for a physician and um, I was trained at Bastyr to look at homocysteine because of that methylation connection. And I would ask her often for these patients that were upping their statin from 20 milligrams of Lipitor to 40 and so forth, um, and they were getting fatigue and muscle aches. Um, and I think we, let's definitely talk about the side effects of, of, of those medications in a moment. But um, I would ask her, what about running their homocysteine? And she would look at me and say, well, there's not a medication for that, so why would I run it? And I think that unfortunately, that's that's the mindset is even if there's a good PubMed uh, literature in a scholarly medical journal about a disease factor and its risk correlation, if that practitioner doesn't know how to influence the risk, they feel that that's wasted time or energy. And I can understand that, but it's unfortunate that that is the case. Exactly. And in the physician lecture, we even heard there was, it was essentially a functional medicine talk and he, there were functional medicine practitioners, Allie included, speaking to physicians who are open-minded and ahead of the curve and fantastic. And I just heard lots of them just murmuring about just completely not even knowing that these are important factors to run. And just, you know, it, it, functional medicine and, and conventional can be, can work really well together, but they're like apples and oranges. And they're just not taught nutrition in medical school. And so I just think it's it's good to be open-minded and keep challenging your physicians. Absolutely. And of these factors, there are direct interventions, like I said, that you can use with nutritional therapy. Um, there's actually a really awesome product. We'll, we'll make some really thorough show notes for you guys that are listening um, with some links to favorite products. And so there is a product called Vessel Care that I love by Metagenics. I just had a patient whose homocysteine score, I like it less than eight. Technically, as far as lab values, it's supposed to be less than 11. But um, I had a patient go from 14.7, almost double the, re the risk score, um, down to 5.6 and they were just taking their vessel care and, and vessel care states on it in the subline uh, support for elevated homocysteine levels and it is methylating nutrients so it's 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate it's methylcobalamin it has a little bit of uh, glycine in it and uh, I think it's trimethylglycine Anyway, it's all these methyl drivers to reduce that value. And the benefit of using a nutritional compound versus a medication is you also build something favorable in the body. So when you reduce homocysteine, you build more SAMe. And this is getting really nerdy, but I think I get really excited about this stuff. Um, when you reduce homocysteine, not only are you just reducing your score on your report card and reducing your cardiovascular risk, you're actually upping the conversion of something called SAMe. And SAMe is very well researched to reduce joint pain. It also helps with mood. It helps with increased 
increasing serotonin uh, and helps with dopamine regulation. So it's like not only are you reducing your cardiovascular disease risk, you're actually improving your quality of life, which is just really cool. Yep, I love that. That's all about functional medicine. It's how we work. So Allie, let's talk about some of the side effects of these common drugs that are being prescribed Highly. Sure. So, so I mean, I think we have to, if we're to, to identify two, um, I, I would call out statin drugs and then diuretics, I suppose, which are kind of the go-to for blood pressure. And uh, I'll, I'll leave metformin or glucophage for a, a, disease, a diabetes one. But um, when we're looking at statins first, statins block an enzyme in the body called HMG-CoA reductase. And this is this huge building block um, enzyme. And um, along that pathway is where we manufacture vitamin D, we manufacture cholesterol, of course, we manufacture testosterone, we manufacture coenzyme Q10, and also then residually we build things like serotonin off of some of those building blocks. So when we block the HMG-CoA reductase with a statin drug, yes, the cholesterol comes down, but we're also at prone risk for things like erectile dysfunction, myopathies or muscle wasting because CoQ10 is an enzyme that is in the mitochondria or the energy factories of all cells in our body, most concentrated in the cardiovascular system and the muscle. Yes, I said cardiovascular system, so you're actually influencing your heart health negatively by bringing that value down with a statin drug. Um, and then things like vitamin D deficiency and um, depression. So kind of my standing joke is, you know, you get your cholesterol to the goal range for a good, again, report card from your physician, but now you have to get prescriptions for three, four, five other medications because you've driven a essential deficiency which has not only lowered your cholesterol it's lowered all of these other essential building blocks yes so that one's i mean if you haven't heard of statin we can't really use other names but i would i would encourage everyone out there to just check out what the medications you're taking are because i think that's the first step in self-education and just seeing if this is the kind of thing you're taking maybe this is why you're really tired or maybe you have no drive no and you know and if you don't choose to spend the money on the more qualitative panels that we're going to recommend you run at least if you are taking a statin drug ensure that your vitamin d is monitored and be taking a coq10 supplement at a good quality source which we'll, we'll add that to our show notes as well a minimum of 100 milligram dosage is essential so do you want to talk about testing and then we can talk about interventions food is medicine interventions? sure sure, okay. sure. so oh oh and real quick diuretics just because i teed it up um so diuretics are the other medication that would be primarily given for cardiovascular disease most of them are going to be playing a role on your, you know, driven for blood pressure lowering effects. Now, the issue with a lot of diuretics, some are potassium sparing diuretics, and, and that's the big one that we saw, you know, in the drug industry. We had to create potassium sparing because potassium levels were getting really low and hypokalemia was driving a lot of systemic issues and, and cardiovascular dysfunction. Uh, which was exactly, again, against the focus of the medication. Um, so beyond potassium, though, there are a lot of other electrolytes like magnesium and calcium functions as an electrolyte. And so we can get things like muscle twitches, restless leg syndrome, generalized fatigue. Uh, we can also have issues with uh, cravings and uh, soreness. Uh, so your electrolyte stability plays a huge role, and then it makes your kidneys overwork for 
balancing the electrolytes and your colon as well. So your kidneys and colon have to go in overdrive and then that downstream can drive even GI stuff like constipation. So um, definitely always looking at treating the root cause and how can you regulate your blood pressure more so by regulating the diet would be, would be essential. Absolutely. Okay, let's move on to resources for some advanced testing and talk to listeners about what options they have to get a better idea of their true cardiovascular risk. So I really love, and there's a bunch out there. There's the Cleveland uh, Cardiovascular Panel. There are um, the Berkeley Panel. um, But the one that I run at my practice and will provide a link to is done by SpectraCell, which is actually a company out of Texas. Uh, I think it's the most affordable uh, test and it's the most comprehensive if we do the one called the Cardiometabolic Panel. The cardiometabolic panel is going to test for both uh, cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And because blood sugar regulation is such a tight correlation with cardiovascular risk, I think it must be looked at as well. So this is going to look at that lipoprotein particle size, so actually the small dense versus the large buoyant LDLs. It's going to look at the size of your HDL particles. It's going to look at the standard lipid panel, the total LDL, triglycerides, and HDL. It's going to include that C-reactive protein, homocysteine. It also looks at your hemoglobin A1C, which is your three-month average of blood sugar levels. It looks at your estimated average glucose, an insulin resistance score, your fasting insulin, insulin levels, adiponectin, which looks at the metabolism of the gray matter, the fat in the body. Uh, What other things am I missing? Oh, there's a really cool now omega-3, omega-6 ratio that they just added on there. So it actually looks at your arachidonic pro-inflammatory fat balance in the blood to your omega-3 EPA, DHA, anti-inflammatory and cognitive promoting um, beneficial fats. So that's a really great way to look at that. That's that whole premise behind the hunter-gatherer diet is to get that omega-3-6 ratio back in check. It's a good way to see if your fish oil is quality and working for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yes, mm-hmm. ma'am. Yeah, so so it's called the cardiometabolic panel, and it's um, done through SpectraCell, and, and that's going to include everything that, that we're looking to, to see for a true assessment of, of what's going on. Okay, so now that we've kind of given a better idea of what heart disease is all about, how it can start, what to really look at to identify to see if it's a problem for you. Let's talk about some of our favorite food as medicine recommendations to maybe address higher cholesterol, to address inflammation, or even prevent disease. Sure. So, you know, generally speaking, we're going to look at an anti-inflammatory low glycemic diet. Um, And so we're looking at anti-inflammatory foods that are going to cool and soothe and reduce that baseline inflammation. And within an anti-inflammatory diet, that also means removing those pro-inflammatory foods. So generally speaking, that's going to be things like the corn and soy, especially those that are non-organic. Um, and gluten um, and uh, promoting more of the anti-inflammatory foods like berries and turmeric and nuts and seeds. Um, And then as far as the low glycemic, we're watching that carbohydrate to protein and fat ratio as we preach about. I think the best place to learn more about that is in our optimal eating um, episode of the podcast, which I think is episode two or three, where we talk about glycemic index and um, how to balance out carbohydrates and what an appropriate amount of intake would be. So that's kind of general as far as where the diet would go. And also just to add on to the anti-inflammatory, a lot of those industrial oils that they cook with, so canola oil, soybean oil, um, 
they are often just what they use in restaurants because they're so cheap. So if you're eating out a lot, but you're doing really well cooking for yourself at home and you use all in organic ingredients, you still have to be cognizant of salad dressings and oils that they cook with in restaurants. Um, and there's so much constant misinformation. Actually, I just heard on the Today Show Dr. Oz promoting seed oils. And, you know, it's really important. It comes down to this idea of the structure of the fat. And, you know, when we're talking about biochemistry, a saturated fat is double bond closed. Um, a, a polyunsaturated fat is going to have open ends of bonds, many, and a monounsaturated fat has one open exposed bond. So when we're talking about a polyunsaturated fat, a polyunsaturated fat with those open exposed bonds, there are bonds that are in the cis form and bonds that are in the trans form. So you may have heard about the term trans fats, and hopefully if you're listening to our podcast, you're on to that, that trans fats are bad and they're not heart healthy. Well, any polyunsaturated fat, that cis bond, especially when exposed to water, which water is in all protein, water is in, well, meats, water is in vegetables, so anything you're cooking, essentially, um, is adding water to that vegetable oil. And that has the potential to convert that cis to trans. And so you can actually make trans fats um, in your own kitchen with a seed oil or a um, polyunsaturated fat. So the best high heat oils are going to be those saturated choices like your ghee, grass-fed grass butter is okay, but ghee would be a higher heat or even lard or coconut oil. Um, all of those are going to be more heat stable and be less prone to that oxidation and inflammation. It usually always comes back to the foods that have been around forever. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I think we joked forever about, well, grandma lived till 90 and she ate butter and lard on her, you know, yeah. toast, whatever. But um, I think it's pretty funny that there's a reason, you know, it, it wasn't ironic, actually. It was superior. Yep. It, was, it was a more nourishing food. <laughs> so let's give listeners some application and talk about two of your favorite food as medicine interventions for dealing with um, fighting inflammation and also bringing down exogenous or excessive, maybe is the word, cholesterol. Excessive, yeah. So so beans are really well researched and um, a three quarters cup a day has been shown to lower the LDL by 20 to 30%. Um, and again, it's more about the particle distribution but if it is elevated and you feel like you want to get that value down before trying drug therapy, that's a really good uh, way to try to test that. Three quarters of a cup a day. So adding uh, white beans, chickpeas, black beans, uh, lentils, doing soups, adding these to salads, doing it as a side. All of these work really nice. Um, and then your nuts and seeds have been shown to reduce morbidity. Um, and so they actually have prevented death um, and we actually tie them to a lot of link with cardiovascular disease because nuts and seeds have magnesium they also have which helps with vessel relaxation so lowers blood pressure the nuts and seeds also have fibers which help to bind and lower cholesterol levels and they also have plant sterols and plant sterols have more of an ability to lower cholesterol without blocking the building blocks so you're not driving deficiency of other compounds you're actually helping with removing the excess floating through the blood. So um, beans and nuts and seeds are great as far as lipid lowering natural compounds. And then your anti-inflammatories are something else that I would consider. So high vitamin C in the diet is really huge. So berries are great, bell peppers, citrus. 
And then um, even considering herbs and seasonings like turmeric. Um, turmeric is one of the uh, go-tos that I have when I'm trying to lower a client's C-reactive protein because it is just one of the most anti-inflammatory natural products available, especially a good quality. Um, Real quick, I know you're ready for the next question. I'm ranting, but we just private labeled um, a really cool turmeric product. It's called Super Turmeric, and it incorporates turmeric oil and turmeric powder. So it hits both the fat and water soluble properties. Um, it's substantially more bioavailable in the blood, even than products that incorporate black pepper. A lot of turmeric on the market is in the Mariva form um, or incorporates biopurines from black pepper to try to be more bioavailable. Uh, the super turmeric has been third party research for bioavailability and it's two to three times more available. So as far as a cancer fighter, uh, anti-inflammatory and a heart disease fighter, that's going to be an awesome thing to consider. Yes, I love this one. The, they look like little baby carrots capsules. <laughs> And they, I could tell right away, I just felt a little achy. And then when I started taking it uh, next day, I could tell. And you don't always get to say that with some supplements. Sometimes they take a while. So that one's, that one's fantastic. Um, okay, last question. I love this one. Allie, how would you respond to people who say, you know, they have genetically high cholesterol and so I really try to avoid eggs and shrimp? Yeah, so, you know, the – Shrimp and eggs have, Carly mentioned the term exogenous in the past um, a couple times. And exogenous means outside of the body. Endogenous means inside of the body. And so exogenous cholesterol is when we were told back in the 90s. Um, it's funny to say that. Yeah, it makes me feel Whoa. really old. Way back in the yeah. 90s. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, when we were told back in the 90s and, and 80s, actually, um, to avoid high cholesterol foods, and that was shrimp and eggs were in that category, along with some others. Um, and the interesting thing is we've learned that exogenous cholesterol or milligrams of cholesterol in a food do not necessarily influence our cholesterol uh, distribution in our blood. Um, taking that a step further... We tend to make more cholesterol and especially more of these small, dense LDLs, those ones that are really dangerous for oxidative damage from refined carbohydrates. So my kind of standing joke is if you have a vegan muffin where a lot of cardiologists, there's a couple, there's one in Houston that preaches a vegan diet for his patients, you know, a vegan muffin that is made with sugar and flour and probably mashed fruit and other carbs um, can actually build more oxidized LDLs in your bloodstream than a, you know, shrimp frittata made with eggs and shrimp. Um, so it's pretty kind of mind-blowing. And then when we take into account, there's two, to take it a little more nerdy, two very beneficial compounds um, in eggs and shrimp. Shrimp have astraxanthin, which is the pink pigment that's also in salmon. And astraxanthin is a very, very powerful antioxidant that's, you know, certain people sell in a supplement form, but astraxanthin is super cardioprotective. And then eggs have choline and um, B vitamins in their yolk, as well as omega-3 fatty acids. So they're giving us these nutrients that many Americans are deficient in, nutrients that help to reduce homocysteine and uh, help with cognition and brain function, and also um, the omega-3s that are anti-inflammatory. So you're actually helping your body by eating those foods rather than harming it. I'm going to tell everyone to listen to this podcast. Hopefully that <laughs> helps clear it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. 
thank you everyone for listening. We hope this helps a little bit, bring you up to speed in how we're approaching heart disease in our clinic. Um, if you're looking for recipes that bring in a lot of these foods that are low glycemic and anti-inflammatory, Allie did put together a cookbook with recipes specifically designed to help prevent disease and to treat disease. So check out the cookbook, check out our blog on Allie Miller RD with, with lots of these low glycemic anti-inflammatory. And I have to say the cookbook is called Naturally Nourished Optimal Eating uh, or Food is Medicine for Optimal Health. There is another Naturally Nourished cookbook. So make oh. sure you look for Allie Miller next to it. Forgot about that. Um, and then, yes, uh, we're going to check out the show notes. We're going to put a link to that cardiometabolic panel and then three or four supplement recommendations, especially if you're monitoring these risk factors so we can provide you with support from afar. And as always, if you want direct individualized care, uh, you can always order the lab direct from us and meet with Carly or I. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes so we keep on trucking. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Carly at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.